What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Ask LFC podcast. This is episode 31. My name is Harrison Gilming. I am the worship arts director slash singer slash former surfer uh, on staff here at Lake Forest. Little known fact, down from <laughs> South Florida. Uh, I'm here with Mike. Moses, good to see you all. Lead pastor Lake Forest Church. Um, good to be back on the podcast today with you, Harrison. We're going to zig or zag. I'm not sure if it's a zig or a zag a little bit with our subject matter today, or you could say we're getting jiggy. With, I'm not going to finish that phrase. Um, <clears throat> I am not Will Smith. I can't pull any of that off. Um, so instead of a, sort of an amplifying an aspect of the sermon, this week I'm going to tell you the story of my historical mentor in the faith and in missional leadership, St. Patrick. I'm going to tell you the story, which is super compelling. A few of you have heard me tell it before, and I want to draw implications for you and me today. So that's the bulk of our podcast today. I am excited to hear it. So this is this is a Ask LFC history tour lesson today and, and, and uh, drawn some stuff from uh, a father of our faith. So it'll be really neat. But before we get to that, we wanted to take a few minutes and catch you guys up to speed as we do from time to time on some of the things behind the scenes that are happening here at Lake Forest Huntersville as we're figuring out, you know, during like a normal season, this really would be hardly necessary as we've had, as we've done every month or so over the past six. But, uh, where we're at in life and ministry right now, uh, we're still, as we've said from day one, we're kind of taking things as they come. We're figuring it out Mm -hmm. as it's unfolding Mm -hmm. and that continues. And if I could say we had an elder meeting early this morning and it was helpful for the elders to hear that we made a decision uh, at the end of the summer to, to do something important. At the beginning of the pandemic, I've heard this true of business leaders, education leaders, etc. But for us as church leaders, we were all day, every day trying to do our real work, which is shepherding people, discipling people, your planning, worship services, all that. At the same time, we had this other full-time occupation put on us, which is strategizing, well, what should we do next week? Mm-hmm. Well, where's the virus now? How do we do that safely, and should we do that, and what if people disagree? And so for months, and and some of you probably experienced this in your profession, just worn out trying to do the work, which went up in pastoral sense, and do strategery. What do we do next? What do we do next? So at the end of July, at the end of summer, Mitch White, our executive pastor, sort of surfaced uh, what our strategy was going to be, which is we're going to make ministry decisions that we're going to play out through the whole fall. Uh, and then we're going to take off of our plate the strategy. Well, should we change it next week? Should we change it two weeks from now? Yep. So that we can focus on shepherding people. That was so helpful. It meant two intensive weeks of decision-making into July, 1st of August. But So for this fall, we're just running on the tracks that uh, that we chose for the fall, uh, in dialogue with other leaders, but now we're starting to think about the next semester. That's right. We've been we've been uh, since, and I don't even remember how many weeks it's been now. But we've uh, toward the middle end of the summer uh, have opened our doors again here to have folks joining us live mm-hmm. for 
mm-hmm. our worship services that mm-hmm. we've that we've been sending out on Facebook and live stream, mm-hmm. and uh, it's been really neat mm-hmm. doing that. We've had some opportunities to do things inside, out under our pergola, even some Sunday evening mm-hmm. stuff, and all of that has been really rich. And for discipleship, we've opened up, reopened the spaces in the church with room size limitations and safety protocols for women's groups, men's groups, community groups, all kinds of groups, marriage ministry, remix, mm-hmm. ministry, children's ministry, gatherings, to some of them choose to gather Zoom, and we've given the option of in-person, the 20-something group on Tuesday nights. Um, that's gone well. Uh, my gosh, Harrison, last Sunday night, Remix had 140 teenagers. Like, that's... That's awesome. That's way up there for their their non-pandemic time. Now they to do that they've they're not only doing one or two remixes. Now they do three on Sunday evenings. One is for sixth graders only because that population's booming. Mm. Um, but and they're keeping distancing right. Every other week they're just small groups, uh, all that. So yeah, so we've had a fall semester plan. We're evaluating that as a staff, but now we're looking toward um, well. Christmas, mm-hmm. December is a season of its own. Yeah, that's true, and the, and and especially around um, around Lake Forest, this is probably true for uh, for folks who attend church in general. Really, the the Christmas season is is one that is really marked by some of the gatherings that we do here at mm-hmm. our church. Mm-hmm. Our our Christmas Eve services, uh, some of the some of the other December events that we do. Last year, there was a a thing uh, that Mitch and Susan and some other members of our team started. Kelly, with, yeah. Yeah, and Kelly was tree lighting story event. time and tree lighting on campus. It was awesome. So we've been really, really trying to, uh, trying to brainstorm and plan together. How can we do some stuff over this Christmas season to make it still feel like Christmas for our folks? So just so you guys know, some of that stuff is is absolutely on the horizon. We know for sure that on uh, December 9th, we're going to be having a, a blue Christmas service, which we uh, have done uh, off and on. Last, Last year year's was the most special mm-hmm. we've done in years. We're now annualizing that for people dealing with grief and loss in the Christmas season. I'm super excited about the next edition of that. Yeah, so we know we're doing that. We're, we're, uh, we've got a lot of options of some special events, maybe some in-person outdoor things, mm-hmm. some fun things during the Christmas season. Uh, and then, of course, the Christmas Eve services will not be the same. There's uh, Last year, I can't remember, uh, we either had more than 3,000 or more than 3,500 for the first time in our Christmas Eve services on 23rd and 24th. Mm-hmm. Um, that won't be happening in a whole bunch of concentrated indoor services, but we're imagining some unique ways to do it in the pandemic. We're not ready to share. We're basically planning along two different trajectories. Mm -hmm. And as we see what happens uh, in our state, our community, uh, and with the weather, but I'm excited about some of the plans there. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We're, We're looking forward to doing everything that we can on our end to just create some opportunities for uh, for us as our Lake Forest Huntersville community to still be able to, you know, even as things are different, make some of it feel normal. <laughs> and let's see, with a capacity of 200 in in-person worship, we could get 3,000 people in and let's see, 5, 10, 15 services. That sounds good. Um <laughs> We could do that, uh, except my voice has gone after five. 
uh, just as importantly, we also have to consider the safety uh, of our, not only our staff, it takes a good number of staff to run our worship services well and with excellence, but even more, two or three times as many staff or ministry partners who commit to being here for all the services. Number one, they couldn't be here for 15, uh, but that would be a real high exposure event for them, even with sanitizing between services. So we're we're working on that. One last look ahead. People have been asking when might we add a second service again on Sunday morning for in-person worship. Uh, again, I told you our principle, we decided for the fall, and we're going to play that out so that we can put our energy into execution and not always strategery all the time. But what we're considering uh, as we watch the conditions, uh, we're eager to add that second service when it's prudent and partly when your demand demands it. Mm-hmm. We've only had one Sunday so far, Harrison, when our 180 to 200 in-person allowed has actually filled up and, and uh, X'd out. That was Baptism Sunday. This past Sunday, it was close to max. Did it max out? Not quite. Yeah, no, not quite. Not close quite. to it. Mm-hmm. So we're watching demand, but also um, uh, we want to serve you with more options. So right now, it, there's a outside possibility we might start that second service back in December but um, my ideal right now would be that would be a, a an energetic way to start January if we can continue to do so safely very good so let me um, let me transition then and start you off with this as the starter question uh, is it actually allowable and permissible to think about or talk about St. Patrick any other time other than March. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. If you want to think like a missional Christian leader, All right. uh, it is always, if you care about the gospel spreading, particularly to pre-Christian or post-Christian persons who don't know the love of God, they're not experiencing the love of God daily through Jesus. They may, they understand that they're a spiritual being that, there's something more, but that's really different from actually living. I loved in our staff devotional yesterday, one of our staff said, you know, I've been at Lake Forest long enough. I don't, I'm a Christian. I don't worry about, do I need to please God? I know that because uh, of Christ in me, I, I am eternally pleasing to God at all times, and I live in his favor. I, Harrison, I was in my home study Zooming. I wanted to stand up and dance around, except if I had, y'all would have all seen I was in my underwear. (laughs) Zoom problems. So vague spirituality is different than knowing God personally through uh, and his love through the saving work of Jesus. So if we care about that, it's always a good time to have a... Or if we care about being mentored by, how did this guy walk with God and hear from God? I want you guys to hear this because I think it's interesting and it pushed me. It continues to push me. Tangent question to what you just said. Uh, just be curious of your sentence or two definition of a term that you just just used. You said uh, in a pre-Christian or post-Christian world. How would you define a a pre-Christian first and then post-Christian? What do those mean to you? Patrick ended up being sent uh, reluctantly by the church, but more directly by God through the internal call. To pro- he consciously went to proclaim the good news of Jesus to a people who had never heard of Jesus. They were aware uh, uh, that across the ocean in the British Isles there were these people called Christians. They had some slaves that they had captured 
who were worshiping Christians and who had maybe even had a chaplain or two. They were aware of this, but only as cultural differences. They didn't know it from the inside. So Patrick was sent to a people who had no conception of the Christian story. You couldn't say, well, hey, remember in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments God said? They'd be like, what? Um, They expressed their spirituality in really cool, interesting ways and some troubling ones, including some human sacrifice. Um, Post-Christian is where much of Eastern Europe... Western Europe is today, for example, uh, where pockets of the United States, and it's a growing aspect of our population. I would define that here as, and we have a number of them here in our community, and they sometimes come to Lake Forest and meet Jesus. That's a person with no living Christian memory in themselves or their family. So someone raised with no, maybe their nation was, did have a lot of Christianity or a lot of church, or maybe most people were. But that's no longer the case, and it's it's so far in the rearview mirror, like in places like London, that there's not any content. You can't appeal to stuff they already know they should be doing. Hmm. You know, like you go to the middle of Kansas or North Carolina, and any random group of people who are unchurched, if you say, hey, man, you know that God loves you, and there's a God, and you owe worship to him, and... He came to you in Jesus, and about at least half of those people will go, yeah, I know that. I just haven't been. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've just been living for myself, quite honestly. Um, we should be able to reach that kind of person like falling off a log here in Lake Norman, Harrison. But the persons, and there are increasing percent of them in our population, who were not raised with any Christian memory, and maybe their parents neither. Um, and that's now over 50% of younger generations. It hit 50% with Gen X. It's more than 50% with millennial and now iGen even more so. Um, that's post-Christian people. Which uh, there's, a, there's a particular difficulty in a lot of ways. Um, you're speaking of, of Europe, and uh, I had a chance a number of years ago to go to the, uh, to the Czech Republic and hang out with some European church planners, okay. and, and they said that living post-Christian uh, is so difficult because um, even as soon as you bring up the name Jesus, uh, a lot of a lot of folks, like you said, would be familiar with the name, but only as a caricature or as like an abstract or as a, oh, I know people who are Christians and, and da, 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 where there are unique challenges for those type of people because they're, uh, it's like a, it's like a, this may be a horrible analogy, but like, like a, you know, a golf swing, you know, you're starting from scratch. Maybe yes. sometimes it's easier to get it right than, you know, if you, if you've been doing it funky for a long time, you try and learn some new habits. Sometimes you have, you have things that you already <laughs> are assuming to be true that are harder to break back down. Yeah, that's good, Harrison. I, I played a butt ton of golf in grad, my grad school days, mid twenties, and I got a decent golf game going. And then I had, I got a job, had a career to develop had kids, a mortgage, and I almost never played until I became an empty nester again. And so I had that swing to, uh, I would play it up that, oh, I'm just starting playing golf, but really? (laughs) I had that swing there. And that's a really apt analogy. It's a totally different thing. Um, So... So Patrick. So Patrick lived in the the 400s. We would say the 5th century, if you know how dating works, but it's the 400s Mm -hmm. A.D., long time ago. What we know about St. Patrick, 90% of it, 
is there are two surviving original writings by him that have come down to us through history. And they're considered the first two. Uh, the, uh, Ireland was an illiterate place. The Celtic peoples were illiterate uh, prior to then. And so his documents are the first living do- uh, recorded documents in Irish history. Mm. Um, they were illiterate not because they were dumb. They were illiterate because the, the um, oh, what do you call them, the... Uh, the Druids, mm-hmm. who were the political slash, they weren't really political, the, who were the religious slash intellectual, and they were the judges also, leaders, um, intentionally. They knew how to uh, read and write, and they knew all this arcane knowledge, but they intentionally did not allow it among the people. It allowed them to concentrate power, mm. the knowledge power among themselves. So that's just an interesting mm. fact. In the 400s, St. Patrick was just a guy. He was a 15-year-old kid. He was a 15-year-old kid like some of our listeners' 15-year-old kids. His parents were leaders in the Christian church in northern England. It was called Britain at the time. It was a province of Rome, the Roman Empire. And they were in the northwest area of England today. We don't know exactly where. It's between two or three locations. They were well-to-do, also like some of our listeners. Patrick's uh, parents were successful. They owned an estate. They were considered Roman and British. They would have spoken in Latin. They also spoke the indigenous Celtic tongue. His dad was a deacon in the church, we know. Uh, they had a number of servants and slaves. And where, our, where Patrick's story picks up, he says, at the age of 15, he scoffed at his parents' belief. It was not his own. He laughed at it. And he took the benefits of living in their household. And then his life changed. A group of pirates from Ireland, so the ancient Celts, uh, came ashore one night and raided his family's estate. Uh, They were slave raiders. Uh, They killed many, including his parents, apparently, as far as we can tell. Mm. Because when he came back, he had all that as his inheritance. Um... Uh, He was captured, along with many of the servants, as a 15-year-old boy, taken to Ireland across the the sea there, and enslaved. He ended up being, uh, I don't know how, we don't know how this worked, but he ended up being the slave of a a chieftain of a tribe uh, in the northern or northwestern coastal area of Ireland, where they made him a shepherd. So, he recounts his he was a slave for five years uh with the and and what he he recounts those years as barely being fed barely being clothed at times naked on mountainsides lashed by storms while he had to keep the flock and it says that it was at this point he turned to the lord so he was not a post-christian person right Mm -hmm. he knew the faith he just never needed it uh, and had never personalized it, which is what we pray for for all of our grade schoolers and teenagers as we raise them in the faith, that, that when the needful moment comes or the moment of identification, they realize, oh, this other stuff I was doing, acting like I was a rich kid and I must be cool because I'm a rich kid. That was St. Patrick. Mm-hmm. That's not an identity worth living. 
So his upbringing, I mean, you could say his parents were successful spiritual leaders in that point because he turned to the Lord. And check this out. He experienced, um, you know, this is a word I like. I would say mystical union with Christ there on those hills. He, in his own writing, he said, one of my favorite little pieces of his writing, he says, the spirit was seething within me, and I prayed up to 100 times a day. Super interesting. Um, now, the, somehow he evidenced this because later in his life, uh, three decades later, when he, before he ever thought about going back to Ireland, He has a dream, and he envisions his old master saying, Come, holy boy, walk among us again. So something in these five years of enslavement as a teenager who has no rights, the Holy Spirit is seething within him. He relates to God in a very personal way, in a very spiritual way, in a tangible way. Mm -hmm. Something was seen by those people that his nickname became holy boy. Interesting. We don't have any more detail in that. Yeah. Super. Okay. So now the end. Of the, he's been a slave for five years. Now here's a pattern in Patrick's life, and and this is where I bring you into the story and me. God spoke consistently at the big moments of his life. God spoke to Saint Patrick through dreams, and he, somehow he knew which dreams were from the Lord because we all dream, but he knew when they were from. I, he doesn't ever say how he knew. Mm-hmm. God has done that in my life, Harrison. Um, sometimes I don't know. Is, is this my own repressed self trying to break through and tell me something I'm not willing to admit about myself? That's a purpose of dreams. Was this just random defragging going on at night? Or was the Lord the spirit of the living God? Because this, this happens throughout Scripture. Jacob, Daniel, etc., Paul had visions and dreams, and I don't know the distinction between a vision and a dream. And Patrick uses those two words, uh, uh, interestingly. So he has, okay. So you listeners, interesting subject. Have you ever, Scott, has God ever clearly spoken to you? Maybe not you woke up and were like, whoa, that was the Lord. But over time, it authenticated itself in the Mm -hmm. spirit. So Patrick has this dream. He wakes up. And, and it's a, he sees in this dream a ship on a shore and says, this is your escape. This is your time for escape, home. So he starts walking. Now picture Ireland. It's not huge, but it ain't small. He walks from the, somehow he knows in this dream that beach was in the southern part of Ireland near modern day Dublin. That was the main port in that time, that part of history. He walks from Northern Ireland all through the bogs and the byways, somehow manages to not be captured. We don't know any details. And he walks out onto a beach and he sees that ship that he had seen in his dream. And he's like, my ship has come. Oh, that was what the language was in the dream. Arise for your ship has come. Hmm. So he sees the ship and he goes to it. And, and he says, whatever, he doesn't tell us what, he asks for passage. And he just assumed, well, God told me this and showed me this, and th- then something unexpected happens. And so, guys, you and me, when, when we hear something from the Lord clearly as a direction or a vision or a calling, um, we expect that, therefore, if God called us to it, it's probably going to be easy and there probably won't be roadblocks, but that was not the case for Patrick. 
He walks up to the ship's captain. Hey, um, you're supposed to, God told me, you know, who knows how, what it sounded like. Uh, I'm supposed to go with you. And it was a ship to Gaul, uh, modern day France. Um, and the captain said, okay, you can go with us if you'll suck my nipple first. <laughs> That's literally uh, no way. the phrase there. <laughs> and Patrick refuses to suck his nipple and retreats back up on the beach, he says. Okay, let's drop out and do a little historical analysis here. That was an unexpected turn, I got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great story. Somebody has got to make the oh, first man. part of his life a movie. And then just the epilogue is his mission. Yeah. So, because um, there are other details. So, what scholars can figure the best? We have not, fa- that has not been uncovered in any, so this is some Celtic thing. What they think it must have been is some pagan ritual that was connected with a pagan god and implied some kind of submission or worship. Obviously, it was a, I'll do whatever the captain says, but it must have been connected to a pagan practice because that was Patrick's line. He would not cross. Hmm. Uh, and, and he says something like, for the love of the Lord, I would not. That's in his own hand hmm. as he's writing about his life. So he retreats up the beach, and then basically the captain comes back and goes, okay, it's cool, come on anyway. <laughs> so yeah so in that interesting okay and this is for all of us god gave him a direction a vision a plan he executed it and then a barrier was there and and someone called for him to dishonor god to keep that plan going he didn't do it he knew well that ain't right worship that's the first commandment worship the lord your god and him only and so he didn't, and then God still provided a way. While this captain now, they now start, they don't actually call him holy boy, but because of something that's about to happen, you can tell they're like, that kid, he's different. He's about 21 at this age, uh, spiritually. Okay, so they get on the boat, and you're like, woohoo! this is the part where he gets home, and everybody comes and hugs him, his aunts and uncles, and he's not a slave anymore, and he lives happily ever after. After. Except that's not what happens next. <laughs> this is, you know, sort of primitive boating. Um, then this huge storm comes up, and they're tossed about, and they think they're going to die. And they're tossed for a long time, and you think about a sailboat. When that happens, you can't, you don't have a motor to try to go north, south, east, or west. You go where the storm takes you. Mm-hmm. And in the end, they get washed up. Their ship breaks up. They washed up on a shore, and they have no idea where they are, and it's a wilderness. And back in the 400s. A whole lot of Europe was a wilderness. They get washed up. They have no idea where they are. Best we can tell, they were in uh, in the the probably the eastern coast, Atlantic coast of France at this point is probably where this is at this point. But we don't know for sure. So they wander for some days, and now they're starving. They cannot find human habitation, and they turn on Patrick and they say. If your God is so good, then uh, ask him to bring some food for us. So Patrick, the, here, here's a first little hint of the boldness of this man. He goes, okay. So he says, oh God, would you provide for us? And right then a herd of wild pigs comes running through their midst. And they feast that night. And they, and they kind of like in the Old Testament when this happens around a pagan, they're like, man, your God must be the God. 
So stuff like that happens. And then he has another defining dream that night. Uh, I think he calls it a vision this time. And he's laying down and he says a darkness comes over him so that he could not even move. Couldn't lift one finger. He said, I could only utter one word, Helios, which may mean Elijah, which, uh, which is, uh, you know, back to Old Testament, reaching out for Jesus. That's a long, you know, connection. It may have meant the Son, and he's calling for the Son of God. Um, and at that moment, the Son, it probably meant Son, because at that moment, a light dawns, and that this dark presence that was holding him down is released from over him, and he feels released into his uh, into his future. Hmm. Okay, so they make it through the wilderness to habitation. Patrick tells us nothing else about his life until 30 years later. <laughs> Not quite 30 years later. He was probably about 45 years old. So between then, all we know is he went into the ministry. So he left a spoiled rich kid scoffing at God, and he came back, and out of these experiences, he enters the training for the priesthood in Britain, which would have meant he probably studied for the priesthood uh, in in modern-day France uh, under a couple different people. So he just, for from the age of 21 to the age of about 45, what is that, 24 years? Mm-hmm. He's just going about his job. Yep. Studying, ministering, serving, and then Harrison, he has another dream. Okay, so here, let me stop here. Okay. For you and me, how old are you? Uh, 35. You're, you're 35 now? Yeah, I think so. My gosh. <laughs> like, you were 28 when you came here as our I worship know, leader. I know, okay. man, that's crazy. Okay, so you, uh, listeners, you know, a lot of us are like, have I reached my life purpose uh, is this all there is, et cetera. And maybe it is all there is. I, like, I like all there is for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm not looking for the next big thing, but a lot of people are. Uh, and a lot of people love what they're doing, but do wonder, is God going to use me in different ways? I think this is super cool. Up until the age of 45, St. Patrick was a nameless, faceless priest serving God in a local church somewhere. Or a monastery. We're not uh, no, not a monastery. It would have been a local parish, as far all the the indications. Just it would have never been known to history. Just doing his faithful thing, yep. and you guys are faithful. I know our listeners. Um, that this is not the rando crowd who listens to this podcast. You guys are living God's purpose for your life, and yet at the age of forty five, God changed it, and His life's work was still ahead of him at the age of forty five. That's encouraging, or it may sound tiring, <laughs> depending on what age you are. I think it. I mean, I th- I think that is super encouraging to think about just knowing, you know, <clears throat> whether it's whether it's things that that we want to see God accomplish in us, things that we want to do as a as a professional or as a as a parent or spouse or something that we've always. Yeah, I mean, there's a a, a a guy who plays in our band who. Uh, is in his 40s and picked up playing guitar 10 years ago. He's one of the best ones that we have where he just kind of looked around one day and was like, Really? I think I can do this. And just ah, <laughs> You'll have to tell me who that is off air. Yeah, so I mean, it, it, I think it's an encouraging thing to think about that there are, that we, we don't 
maybe know yet all the things that we may be mm-hmm. good at by the time we're 30 or 40 years old. So, And yeah. it may be as much as anything that in in the years of the, of the 50s, 60s, it may be that it's, it's sort of a natural thing that becomes such a high calling, such as being a grandparent to a grandchild who's not in a Christian home. That's a high calling. What's well, a mm-hmm. high calling being a grandparent anyway? Putting the ballast of, of unconditional love into a grandchild is an incredible opportunity. But So, okay, so he has, guess how God speaks to him this time, Harrison? If you're wrong, you get penalized 10 hey, points. Oh, I, got, I only have two choices, so dream. <laughs> yes, a dream. God speaks to, the, guys, I, I just think this is so instructive. It's also, Harrison and I, Pastor Aaron uh, at Westlake, Jeff Cook, we're exploring how out of our... We were led to do our series on the Holy Spirit back in the spring, not out of a, hey, it's time to do that, but out of a, we think there's a pretty big quotient of experiencing the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit when we're gathered as the people of God in our personal lives. We think there's a layer of that that generally Lake Forest leaders and people have been leaving on the table. Mm -hmm. And we have a multi-year goal and we have some plans for this and then some ways you can't plan this. We want... (laughs) For all of us, more of the experience and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so this is pushing for me. So the Spirit now gives him a vision. And and in this dream, he's somewhere and he says, I received the letters from the Irish people speaking the voice of the Irish to me, Hmm. saying, come walk among us again, holy boy. And he woke up. Now he had to interpret that dream. He doesn't write it exactly this way, but the way he understood what God was calling was for him to now take this precious gospel that he's been giving his life to, giving away to others, to bring the gospel, as he says, he's very conscious as a fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. Remember, Jesus says, once all nations have heard the gospel, I'm I'm forgetting the exact phrase, then I will come again. Hmm. Patrick quotes that multiple times. He is self-conscious that, and, and think about this, in the 400s, as far as anybody in Europe knows, Ireland is the edge of the earth. Mm-hmm. And he says, we're taking it to the last peoples at the edge of the earth. Um, so he's very self-conscious about fulfilling the Great Commission mm-hmm. and that that's what that dream meant. So that's what he does. And now he has, so, so okay, here's a uh, guess. Does Patrick now get in a boat and go and go there and start preaching by himself, or does he come up with a strategic plan? I mean, today, we would come up with a strategic plan. We'd have budgets and all that. Yep. Which do you think he did? He, prob- he probably did not start a launch team, I'm imagining. It sounds like he just, just went over and figured it out. Nope, you're wrong. This time. He did start a launch team. Yes, he did. No way. Guess what he did. He, this is interesting, too, and this might press some of us. He invested a whole bunch of money and time. He gathered a big team. He didn't just go one-off half-cocked. Now, there are people who are called to do that, okay? Not St. Patrick. Oh, I got you on that one. You did. You did. You got me. I haven't been telling this story enough then. (laughs) Here's what he does. He goes and he tells this to his superior. At this point, there's one Christian church, and you can't really call it the Catholic Church at this point. It's Mm -hmm. the Christian Church. Mm -hmm. It developed into the Roman Catholic Church, but it was the church. Uh, And it felt, 
His writings actually feel more like a Protestant to me than a medieval Catholic. You, you'll love him, guys, if you look it up and read. You'll, you, I've called him a proto-Protestant before. But a lot of the early church fathers read that way. So he goes and he gets approval, which was very controversial. I'll, t- I'll come back to that in a second. He gets approval by the British church to be sent because he's a man under authority. Hmm. But that approval becomes very controversial. Uh, and I'll tell you that in a second. Um, that's like church denominational stuff. That's interesting to people like me. Maybe not you. Uh, but he says he sells his patrimony. Patrimony is your inheritance from your father. Hmm. He goes and sells those estate lands, and they were rich people, in order to fund this. And, and he says that because later in his life he's accused of being in Ireland for financial motives or whatever. People accuse you of all this kind of stuff. And one of his defenses is, no, no, no. I sold my entire family inheritance to fund this. So he goes with a team. Uh, here's the best we can tell. He goes with a, we don't know numbers, but uh, uh, he goes with a big team of young training priests because he gives report of as he goes from tribe to tribe around Ireland for the next 30 years, he'll drop a young priest here, drop a young priest there. He brings deacons. He brings bakers. He, bring, he brings um, porters. He bring, like, it's this big deal. It's like Lewis and Clark yeah. on steroids um, because Ireland was a very rural, swampy place. They didn't really have roads. They got around in boats. Um and, and they're very tribal and, and in one way is harmonious culture all over the island, but they were at each other's throats, tribe to tribe. They were nomadic, etc. So he's got to be prepared for self-sustentation. And so that's what this money goes for. Fascinating to me. And so here's the one, though there's really only one part of the popular St. Patrick tradi- Day tradition that is true to the story. It's the beer. <laughs> It's recorded that he had his personal brewmeister uh, on the trip. It's doubtful the beer was green, Harrison. Mm. Highly, highly doubtful. Unless something went wrong. Yes. Probably. Now, the beer would have been for reasons of cheer, but primarily uh, it would have been thin beer, and it was for the sake of having potable drinking water. Um, uh, that's a, one of the roles of that type of alcohol at that period in history because you think about it, if you drink light beer, it's not, it's not, it's a little bit dehydrating, but it's different than if you're drinking thick stuff or high alcohol stuff. Um, so it's a way of sustentation. It also gives you some calories. So there you go. So he shows up with a big team. And then uh, here's where I'll, 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 maybe I'll skip to the end here. Um, I could tell you a good bit about his methodology, but basically... He just shows up and starts, uh, goes from one tribe to the next. Um, one of the ways we know that he gained a hearing was he would, he would offer physical benefits to the Celts. He would offer, hey, those uh, Druids have been keeping the daughters and sons of the chiefs from learning how to read and write and that education. And you know, hmm. over there in the Roman Empire lands, everybody's learning, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, wouldn't you like to be as cool as they are? And so the, a lot of the chiefs would dedicate their daughters and sons 
to be educated by this roving band because they were like, cool, that's awesome. You can imagine the Druids were not happy, yeah. religiously empowered-wise, and, and that's where the conflict came from in particular. Um, they would also offer, they offered some technological innovations. Um, they taught them, there's an evidence that I blogged about before, and I use in my church planning class, of a tidal mill technology. Um, I won't stop and explain that, but it, it basically was a uh, 10 to 100 times more efficient way of milling your grain or your corn or whatever their mm. grains were. Um, and they would set these up at certain monastery or church sites as a way of gifting the people with greater productivity in their food stuffs. Well, that's pretty cool. That's the equivalent of today. Is is the church, are we of some material good to people? Do we care about their physical lives and the upfit of their of their status in life as well as their spirit? And Patrick models that. I could talk about more ways. Super cool. Now, this isn't all, all just isn't just a happy, easy story. Patrick writes about being imprisoned many times, being beaten. Mm-hmm. He was threatened with execution more than three times. Um, he would risk his money to uh, buy back Christian slaves from these tribes and liberate them. Uh, he would use his resources to buy back slaves from one tribe to the other. Basically, the tribes in the pre-Christian Celtic tribes would engage every springtime in, in ritualistic warfare. They were never trying to wipe out the other tribe. That's a different kind of warfare. But they would basically go cattle raiding and slave raiding on each other. And you would just and it it was kind of at the level of trading. Like but it was violent. Yeah. People got killed. It kept animosity high. Um it was ugly. And Patrick started mediating that kind of thing from evidence that we can see. So now I'm gonna skip to the end. Long story short. This is one of the most remarkable stories in the history of Christian mission and evangelism because while Patrick, there, there's a lot of scholarly disagreement. How much is Patrick singularly responsible for what I'm about to tell you? How much was he just the most notable part of a movement that probably included other people? I would say the truth is somewhere in the middle. Hmm. He was the initiator. Within a generation, Harrison, the island was majority Christian, Slavery was outlawed. Hmm. Think about this. That's the 400s. America didn't get around to that till daggum 18 whenever, 65, or mm-hmm. maybe it took a year or two after that. Um, the wow. implications of the gospel regarding slavery have been clear from the beginning. When the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy or Titus that no slave trader will enter the kingdom of God. Uh, anyway, slavery was outlawed within a generation ritualistic tribal warfare as the a defining part of their culture was ended. Uh, that doesn't mean everybody, there was peace in the land and it was the kingdom of God, right? Mm-hmm. You understand. Mm-hmm. And this is remarkable. Um, and and some one of my favorite outcomes is even more unique, a unique type of church sprung up. It's evident that that Patrick contextualized the gospel to the unique cultural uh, and ethnic and even spiritual proclivities of the Celtic people. 
because a church grew up in Ireland for the next several hundred years that was uniquely Celtic Christian. It was orthodox in theology and in conversation with and submissive to the larger Roman church. But it had its own flavor. It valued women in leadership more. It celebrated God's beauty in nature. It it didn't have to over-define everything. Think of all the councils in Greek thought. They had to hyper-define every aspect of theology. The Celts would just celebrate the mystery and the beauty of the Trinity. It's a very Trinitarian faith, the the three in one, and state it, uh, inhabit the mystery without over-describing it in a way that almost makes it more plausible, Mm. certainly to the Celtic heart. That's something that that's something that we still uh, some of the neatest uh, Christian communities that lead the way in even our liturgy of how we've done things here over years at Lake Forest are uh, Irish faith communities that really embody that same kind of principle of just uh, embracing more of the beauty and the mystery of who God is, which is really neat. And I, I think just two other snap thoughts and I would throw out there, uh, Mike, if anyone listening is, uh, is half as interested as, as I am, I'd love to sometime here over the next couple months where we have a week where it makes sense to, I'd love to hear even some of that, that middle ending part of this story and come back as well. But two thoughts, I think it's super interesting that number one, that he, he was called back and willingly came back to a place that <laughs> for him yes. had only represented extreme trauma. Yes. Um, a, a, a place that had caused him nothing but harm and pain that a, that's where God called him to. And that B, he was like, okay, let's go. That's where I need to be. And the second interesting thing that you touched on is just, it doesn't feel like this should ever be controversial, but you, you see this popping up from time to time that, uh, no, as, as we, as we live in the world, our, our, our only concern is for people's souls, you know, mm-hmm. and and just such an, an evidence, uh, starting obviously with Jesus. It, do, it doesn't make any sense to me mm-hmm. why anyone would have a problem with this, but um, part of the way that we care for people and show them the love of Christ is by helping to meet material earthly needs, by helping to raise people's status and situation here in tangible ways that you can touch and hold because that's that's the language that people understand that uh, that God must care about me because these people care about me more than just saying uh, turn or burn, you know? Well said. Uh, I have 15 other things I've learned from St. Patrick that I've taught in various places and won't give today, but the final thought is just where you honed in, Harrison. Be encouraged, friends, and I'm encouraged in this moment again. In Patrick's, the, the worst moment of his life, uh, the worst suffering in his life, he chose to entrust himself to the living God. Hmm. He did have another choice. His other choice could have been despair or cynicism or, frankly, malevolence toward his captors. He chose to trust God uh, and trust himself to God and grow intimate with him, not knowing where this would lead. And as you aptly pointed out, not only did that gift him, it would have been enough if what that gifted him with when he returned 
to his homeland of Britain, it would have been enough if, if he goes, look, I learned how to know and trust God during that time, and now I'm going to live that way for the rest of my life. That would have been enough. Mm-hmm. In addition, it is out of the great hurt and deprivation of his life that God brought the greatest flowering of the gospel from his life outcome. And I wonder, I think we can all identify with the opportunities of that, and I pray that you and I have eyes to see uh, how to go deeper with the Lord in our moments of suffering and deprivation, which all of us have at some point right now, and eyes to see where in our future he might flower an even greater ministry for us in our work, in our home, in our culture, uh, because of that deprivation. Hey, thank you for allowing me to introduce you more clearly to my number one historic mentor, St. Patrick. It was my, like, it felt like being a kid in a candy shop to do my doctoral research and writing on that. I was sad when it was over. Well, I will... I will just say now we'll be back to this topic sometime soon because that was fun. That was awesome. Thank you guys for uh, hanging with us here at the Ask LFC podcast. We will be back soon, uh, and we will catch you guys over the weekend and uh, over this next stretch. Look forward to seeing you guys and hanging with you. Have a good one.